0: and welcome everyone. I'm Elsa Fogg Vernon, the Technical Coordinator of Events and Education here at the Boston Athenaeum. And I'm excited, excited, I should say electrified, to introduce our guest speaker this afternoon, Lucas Cohen, Public Arts Curator for the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy. But first, kindly mute your devices and note the emergency exits indicated by the illuminated signs at the front and back of the room. Speaking of illuminated signs, they are the perfect segue into our subject this evening. The Greenway's 2018 public arts curatorial theme titled GLOW, an exhibition of commissioned light based artwork, architecture and interactive experiences that showcase the interplay of light and art in our culture. Eight large-scale historic neon signs from local businesses are a highlight of GLOW. These signs, circa 1914 through 1970, present a tremendous opportunity to engage new audiences who are interested in 20th century popular culture. The exhibition will also tell the story of Dave Waller, a collector with a passion for restoring and preserving these magnificent works. Lucas Cohen became the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy's first public art curator in 2014. Previously, he directed the public art program for the Maryland State Arts Council and was the senior curator of exhibits for the Millennium Park and the Chicago Office of Tourism and Culture. He was most recently elected to the Americans for the Arts Public Art Network Council and served on the board of trustees for the International Sculpture Center Publishers of Sculpture Magazine. He is also founding member of the Advisory Council for the Cold Hollow Sculpture Park in Vermont. And now I'll turn the podium and the spotlight over to Lucas Cohen.
1: Hi everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for that introduction and and thank you for having me here today. I I hope to enlighten you today. Um, And I apologize for my sunburn. I've been outside installing (laughs) signs, neon signs, these past few days. So if I'm a little bright red, it's because I'm sunburned. so what I just want to do today is I'm going to give a little bit of uh, a history about the Greenway. I'm sure most of you lived through the Big Dig here. Uh, I unfortunately did not. I've only been here for about four years. Uh, but I'm excited to be working for the Greenway uh, and reinterpreting it in a, a contemporary light. Um, so in 1991, after almost a decade of planning, construction began on the central artery, uh, t- or otherwise tunnel project, uh, more widely known as the Big Dig. This project, recognized as one of the largest, most complex, and technologically challenging in the history of the United States, would remove the elevated highway and create a tunnel system below the city. With the elevated highway system to be relocated underground, community and political leaders seized the opportunities to enhance the city by creating the Greenway, a linear series of parks and gardens that would reconnect some of Boston's oldest, most diverse, and vibrant neighborhoods. The creation of the Greenway was a joint effort of the Massachusetts Turnpike Authority, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the City of Boston, and various civic groups. On October 4, 2008, tens of thousands of visitors came together for the park's inaugural celebration with the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy. The following year, on February 23, 2009, the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy assumed operational responsibilities for the parks. Today, the Greenway uh, encompasses gardens, plazas, and tree-lined promenades, and is a key feature of the modern reinvention of Boston, the harbor, and the waterfront. These are just a few uh, kind of um, details in regards to actually the Conservancy itself. Uh, They're actually established in 2004 as a fundraising entity, and it wasn't until 2008 that uh, legislation was uh, granted, giving the Conservancy full responsibility for operations programming and the improvement of the the park system. Uh, Most recently in 2015, uh, MassDOT gave uh, the Greenway another 1.3 acres of land to manage, uh, and then, most uh, just last week, last uh, month, uh, some of you may have heard too, uh, the Greenway um, has become the second uh, area for what's called the Greenway Business Improvement District. Uh, the only other business improvement district uh, currently downtown is um, the downtown uh, downtown crossing. Uh, And this is um, allowing us to be kind of more financially stable in regards to a special tax premium that will be put on the businesses that line the Greenway uh, in introducing about $1.5 million a year through a special tax that will go into the uh, upkeep and management of the park system itself. Just to note, all programs and or public art that we do is privately fundraised for. No state funding uh, goes into any or or, uh, taxpayer funds go into the produce production of public art or programming on the Greenway that is all privately fundraised through uh, private philanthropic support, competitive grants, uh, and or our revenue-generating programs on the Greenway, such as the food trucks or our third-party event rentals. Uh, And a couple key facts. We're 17 acres across 1.5 miles from Chinatown to the north end. Uh, We, again, we manage the complex infrastructure of seven uh, fountains that line the Greenway uh, and computerized lighting systems. The entire park itself is completely organically maintained. We use zero pesticides, um, and we have an entire staff of uh, horticulturists and volunteers that create um, and maintain all of those lovely flowers and plants throughout the Greenway. We actually host more than 400, we're at 450 free events annually, Uh, and we have a system of free Wi-Fi and mobile eats and vending programs, and then most recently, kind of starting in 2015, we started the Temporary uh, Exhibitions of Contemporary Public Art. Okay, so... In 2012, the Greenway Conservancy completed what was called the Public Art Strategy. Uh, and that strategy paved the way for the Greenway to become a premier destination to see contemporary art uh, in downtown Boston. The public art vision is to bring innovative and contemporary art to Boston through free, temporary exhi- exhibitions, engaging people in meaningful experiences, interactions, and dialogues with art and each other. The Greenway gives artists unique opportunities to exhibit bold, new work that consider the possibilities of a 21st century Boston. Excuse me. The, uh, The strategy itself was meant to take our community a step forward in presenting contemporary public art by capitalizing on the energy, creativity, and adaptability that the Greenway offers as an evolving public space. The curatorial vision and organizational structure uh, are the product of public input, best practice research, and the passionate contributions of artists and arts advocates from across the country. Three basic principles kind of came out of that strategy. Um, One, that all works on the Greenway would be both contemporary and or temporary. Uh, Nothing on the Greenway actually, uh, public art wise, stays longer than a full 18 months. Uh, A a multitude of reasons for why that is, uh, is that one, we maintain through a lease uh, the park system with MassDOT. Should the Conservancy go away, MassDOT would be fully responsible for permanent public art. And I think we know how we need potholes re- redone every year. We don't want them managing contemporary public art. Uh, secondly, we're over still over a uh, tunnel system where anywhere in between the park system Uh, and the the top of the rooftop of the tunnel is anywhere between one foot to only six feet. So the idea of of instituting large-scale footings and other infrastructure to maintain large uh, pieces of sculpture, it just doesn't seem feasible. And secondly, or excuse me, and thirdly, um, you know, Boston is in a new chapter of understanding itself through contemporary art. Uh, we didn't want to uh, close the book or the chapter on one artwork that was going to define us. You, know, you look at other cities like Chicago and New York, and yes, they have permanent works that define them. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Sitco sign defines us, and that's a little bit about this exhibition coming up. But um, the idea is to constantly have that evolving co- conversation. Uh, and, and that's why everything is temporary and contemporary. The second thing that came out of it, uh, the strategy itself, was the hiring of a public art curator, which was myself. Uh, as it was stated a little bit, I have a little bit of a background actually in kind of public art startups, specifically uh, with Millennium Park in Chicago, which is a 24-acre uh, cultural park, uh, and I created the Boeing Gallery's uh, public art program uh, at Millennium Park. Uh, with Maryland, I wrote the legislation for their percent for our uh, uh, capital improvement projects across the state, uh, and then I saw an amazing opportunity here in Boston where nothing had been done of this nature in downtown Boston uh, in regards to a very contemporary park. Uh, and so that's what really drew me here to Boston, and, and I'm very excited to be here. And the third thing that came out of that strategy was the invitation for a international competition which resulted in the large-scale work by Janet Ekelman as if it were already here in 2015. This was a really, I think, uh, amazing piece. Um, I kind of call it our coming out party for public art in Boston. Uh, it kind of set the stage to say, if we can do this, we can do anything. Um, this was extremely one of the most complicated in- infrastructure uh, temporary projects for only six months, as it was attached to three separate buildings uh, located in downtown Boston in the Fort Point Channel uh, district. It was connected to the one Internet, or excuse me, uh, Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, 125 High Street, and then we took out a window uh, at One International on the 29th floor and installed a 2,000-pound beam in which we were able to winch this piece up, Uh, and it stood for six months. Uh, It was engineered specifically uh, for hurricane-force winds and other devastations and acts of God. So if the building was going to go down, this net was going to go down. If the net was going down, all the buildings were going down. Uh, It was engineered uh, completely uh, in regards to how the buildings were created. Um, And I think this was really transformative for us in the sense that we actually went literally knocking door-to-door on a multitude of about, I would say, 20 different businesses to see if we could tie directly into the infrastructure of their buildings. Uh, And for people to say, sure that was like okay we're gonna do this Uh, and so by working with these three property owners we worked with their three engineers plus our engineers and our general contractors and the state and the city uh, and in the end um, produced this amazing artwork it was also wonderful to be able to present one of the first artworks by a local artist if you don't know Jenna Elkeman has been showing nationally and internationally for almost, uh, I would say, going on 16 years. But she had never done uh, an artwork in her hometown. She's actually still living and working uh, and based out of Brookline, Massachusetts. we, over the past five years, the Greenway has been awarded four Public Art Network Awards through the Americans for the Arts, which annually recognizes outstanding public art projects that represent the most compelling works for the year from across the country. Uh, this is a very competitive process, as over 400 projects are submitted annually, and only 30 to 50 are chosen each year. So to have four over the past five years, we're quite proud of that. Uh, the first being uh, the Os Osgemios artwork in 2012 uh, on the Vent uh, Stack Building in Dewey Square, 2014, Shanique Smith, Kusokyo, uh, in his work called uh, "Wandering Sheep," which was the first of twelve. Uh, where uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this uh, curation of uh, contemporary reinterpretations of the Chinese zodiacs in Chinatown, uh, and then most recently uh, last year, Matthew Hoffman's uh, "May This Never End" fence-based piece, uh, which was actually just acquired by the City of Boston. Um, they purchased it and have reinstalled this artwork in uh, in Austin, Massachusetts, in Alston, the city of Alston. Excuse me. Um, So, why do we, how how are we able to do a lot of this? Well, one of the main ways to do this uh, type of work is also through partnerships. Uh, And partnering with like-minded organizations, including the location where we're sitting here today, um, allows us to host a compelling speaker series, uh, energetic gatherings uh, of the arts community, uh, and to help build awareness, excitement, and support for for our public art program. The Greenway is not a silo organization. We create connections that pull and push you off the Greenway. And the best example of that would be the Greenway mural uh, program um, on the air ventilation intake structure. So if you don't know, this is actually a structure that just basically has one giant massive fan inside of it. And what it's doing is it's pulling uh, air out of I-93 and pushing in good air. So it's a structure. Uh, that has an interesting shape. It's actually won architecture awards for air ventilation intake structures, which I didn't know there was actually an award category for that, but it has. Um, And this is really kind of basically the main impetus, um, uh, excuse me, the the main uh, image of the public art program. It's the most visible thing as it's seen uh, in probably one of the most prominent locations in downtown Boston outside of South Station. Over 400,000 people pass by this daily. And we have worked with a variety of partners in creating these artworks. So uh, the Oscemios work and the Matthew Ritchie work uh, in 2012 and 2013 were done in partnership with the ICA. Shanique Smith was done in partnership with the MFA, uh, as well as uh, her exhibition uh, called Bright Matter. That was was done in 2014 and continued through 2015. Uh, We partnered with the MIT Visualist Arts Center to produce the work of conceptual artist Lawrence Wiener. And then uh, the most current mural, which is, is up uh, only for five more days, believe it or not, uh, by Mehdi Gandhianlu from um, Tehran, was done internally, It was curated internally by myself and the Greenway as part of last year's curatorial concept called Playful Perspectives. And Playful Perspectives was looking at artworks and commissioning artists that use perspective either in, say, Mehdi's trompe l'oeil uh, perspective or forced perspective or historical and social perspective. So who's coming next? Just so you know, we haven't released this press release yet, so you guys are actually going to be seeing the first images of who's coming, so shh. <laughs> um, we partnered with the de Cordova. Uh, the de Cordova's uh, main mission, or one of the main missions of the de Cordova is always to present art and nature together. And that is a, a similar mission to the Greenway and the public art program. And we've chosen, I worked with the curator Sarah Montrose at the Decoradova Sculpture Park and Museum to produce a work uh, by artist Shara Hughes, who is a relatively young artist. Um, She's about 36 years old, and she lives and works in uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, She actually has uh, quite a connection to the New England landscape. Uh, She graduated from the Rhode Island um, School of Design and attended the Skohegan School of Painting and Sculpture uh, in Maine. And she also received a Joan Mitchell Fellowship to attend the Vermont Studio Center. She's had a multitude of solo exhibitions in New York uh, uh, and other places nationally, such as the Museum of Contemporary Art. uh, The uh, gallery met at the Metropolitan uh, Opera House, the Lincoln Center. um, But most recently, she had her whole room dedicated to herself at the Whitney Biennial uh, this past year in 2017. Uh, Her paintings present layers of abstracted, actual, and pictorial spaces. Uh, There is a sense of focus, purpose, directness, Yet they uh, depict suggestions of open space, floating moons, flowing rivers, and melting snows. Her works and landscapes are actually imaginative. They are not actual realistic images of any one place or structure. She draws heavily from the traditions of Art Nouveau, Fauvism, and German Expressionism. And you can see uh, uh, quite a bit of evidence within uh, Munch and Seurat and the color of Matisse and Franz Marc within her artwork. In order to create the artwork for the air ventilation intake structure, uh, she created a diptych, which we are going to be translating on the wall through a company called Overall Murals based out of New York. Overall Murals actually created the, uh, artwork, uh, by Lawrence Wiener, or translated the artwork of Lawrence Wiener and both, um, Lawrence Wiener and Shanique Smith. The actual painting will also be on display concurrently with the mural at the Decordova for one year. Uh, you also, uh, may, if you've, has anyone traveled to MoCA lately? Anyone up there? OK. I highly recommend you go there because there's an amazing exhibition there called um, The Lure of the Dark, Contemporary Painters, Conjure the Night. And Shara is one of the lead artists in that exhibition. She has eight works in that, in that, um, that uh, exhibit that will be up, I think, until November. So, are you ready? Here we go. A very different landscape, a very different way of looking at landscape a very different way in which Shara creates. Shara herself, as a painter, uses a multitude of textures and um, supplies in the way in which she creates. Here you'll see kind of evidence of, of spray paint. Here you'll see kind of these movements of Conte Cran. Um, And what Shara did is create a piece called Carving Out Fresh Options. She used the structure itself kind of as a rock formation and this idea of water that runs through these rocks, almost like the Grand Canyon, to create these caverns and these uh, oculus areas to uh, kind of view and look through. Um, This is her first mural. She's never done a large-scale mural. Her works are mostly about 66 inches by about 55 inches. So this is a new way of working and thinking for her specifically. Um, I think another amazing thing about the, the air ventilation intake structure and the, the, the Greenway Wall program that we do is that we've shown a variety of ways in which artists create and movements um, or concepts within art. With those gemios, it was graffiti based. With Matthew Ritchie, it was kind of minimalist. With uh, Lawrence Wiener, it was um, conceptualism. And here, we're talking about landscape, So we're, sh- we're constantly changing that narrative and showing new ways in which artists are working. Uh, So we're really excited about this. This work is actually going to begin next week. On uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're scraping and priming the current mural. And this work will be translated starting the 18th through the 24th uh, of this month. So look out for that. Come out to the Greenway. Uh, Shara will be there. She'll be helping to supervise. She's coming out the 20th through the 25th to help uh, create this wall. And also go out to the Cordova and see their shows. So GLOW. What is GLOW? GLOW (laughs) is, uh, in short, Neon Signs from Massachusetts, dating from about 1925 to 1970. So, neon was a special movement in a long history of human illumination. Central Boston has been lit by various forms of artificial light since pairs of night watchmen began patrolling city streets in 1635, swinging lanterns from handheld poles, oil-lit streets excuse me, lamps, uh, were installed in Boston in 1773, spreading light throughout the most populated sections of the town. Well-lit public spaces are a prerequisite for safety, prosperity, and social life. The spread of municipal lighting in Massachusetts fundamentally changed the relationship between night and day, allowing people to work longer hours and navigate greater distances in the dark. Beer gardens and restaurants lit with bright new gas fixtures, heralded the arrival of a genuine nightlife. In the 19th century, in the 19th century, restaurants blossomed across towns, and ordinary people expanded the number of hours they spent outside the walls of their homes. The turn of the 20th century marked the spread of electric light through the metropolitan area, creating the comfortable environments familiar to us today. Neon light, which was brought to the United States from Paris in the 1920s, has a particular magic. Neon's distinctive, colorful glow, the ease with which its its displays can be customized, as well as its relatively affordable running costs, gave it a special appeal to advertisers. Neon lighting was a popular investment for uh, merchants during the Great Depression, who used the bright, inexpensive tubing to update their storefronts and attract hard-to-come-by customers. After World War II, Neon experienced a kind of golden age. As large corporations embraced the low shipping costs and ease of distribution offered by standardized backlit acrylic signs, neon signage became a niche opportunity. For small businesses, owners, uh, and owners, neon's relatively affordability, as well as ease of fabrication, meant that they could advertise their offerings on a scale suited to the increasingly automotive landscape of the post-war era. All of the signs you're going to see in GLOW became landmarks in their neighborhoods and towns. These glittering, creative neon signs were in some ways more memorable than the ordinary buildings next to which they flashed and blinked. Neon signage may not have uh, been considered an art form, but it was and still is a form of creative expression. Each of the signs in GLOW is evidence of the unique blend of skills on the part of its fabricator. Viewed together, the signs are part of Massachusetts' graphic and creative history, as well as a legacy of the Bay State's history of entrepreneurship. In placing these signs together on a park in central Boston, the Greenwood Conservancy is inviting you to consider new ways of reading these signs and contemporary ways of thinking about how neon can serve as a catalyst for engaging with and in public space. Some visitors may remember one or more of these signs as favorite food destinations, places of employment, or simply a bright flashing marvel on a well-traveled route. By bringing together signs from different locations in Massachusetts, this exhibition offers a brief tour of a much larger state By placing these signs in close proximity with each other, the Greenway is creating a new geography of light, inviting you to consider how the presence or absence of light can define a space, how particular kinds of light can encourage us to come together, how light can create open, inclusive spaces for dialogue about technology, creativity, and the shared heritage of our built environment. So all of the signs that you see actually come from a, a multitude of different locations within Massachusetts. The farthest kind of reaching, oops, excuse me, the farthest reaching, uh, would be over here in Wilbraham, going all the way up to Saugus. Uh, this is a part, these signs are part of a 350-piece collection by a local collector named Dave Waller. Dave Waller, um, is a Malden, uh, resident. Uh, you may also know him as he and his wife Lynn purchased the Graves Lighthouse and have been working to restore that, that lighthouse. Uh, he and Lynn have been collecting neon signage for, uh, since the early 70s, and he has, uh, The entire crux of the collection is actually located both in Malden as well as in Lynn, Lynn, Massachusetts. Dave himself, I I talk about him in a lot of ways as uh, 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 basically being a cultural anthropologist. Dave is obsessed with this idea of roadside architecture and kind of the digital graphic, or excuse me, the graphic identity of towns and cities that were formulated by these neon signs. Um, you think back to, to technology today. Neon was was what the iPhone was essentially. It was new technology. It was this bright, flashing uh, beam of light pulling you in to sometimes these motels that were just you know a one-level structure. Uh, going back and looking at some of the signage here, I'll just point out. This is the Siesta Motel, um, which was located in Saugus. And the way that they're installed actually goes from Wilbraham to to, uh, Saugus. So it's kind of a triptych, if you will. So the Siesta Motel, dating back to about 1954. Uh, The European, which was one of the most famous restaurants in the north end, that closed in 93. Uh, Bay State Auto, which was a spring manufacturer that started in about 1920, that originally started forging springs for horse carts, then moved into the automotive landscape in, uh, in, uh, in Boston. GE radio, or what is known as uh, Bill's TV and radio, um, is actually the oldest sign. This dates back to about 1925, and is an actual sign from Claude Fidel, who brought neon from Paris over to the United States. And this was based in Roxbury. Uh, We've got, uh, excuse me, oops. Uh, here we've State Line, which is in uh, Wilbraham, which was the potato chip factory um, that started production um, in the 40s that would deliver that produced chips and then deliver them uh, straight from the truck the day after, basically with no preservatives. Um, Fontaine's Chicken, which is probably one of the most memorable signs in this exhibition, other than say the Sitco sign, and is the most well-known, which was serving up uh, uh, chicken, uh, uh, fried chicken in, in West Roxbury. Cycle Center, uh, Natick. Uh, I say it wrong. Natick, Natick, Natick. Thank you. I always get it wrong. Uh, which was uh, from 1942 about, 1940 to about ni- or excuse me, 1960 to about 19, uh, 1997, which was a massive uh, uh, bike center. Uh, and then Flying Inky Restaurant, which I think is so interesting, was actually uh, located in Auburn between Route 20 and Route 12. Uh, and was produced um, to mimic um, the, the rocket ship. Why would the rocket ship be on that? well, Goddard of Goddard Space Station, you know, and NASA, launched his first rocket in Auburn, Massachusetts. Uh, and so um, there's also reference to uh, the Flying Yankee uh, would be the memorable train that uh, went up along the New England Corridor. So there's three different ways of talking about kind of um, transportation within this one si- The sign uh, being located off of the highway system. Um... To connect the dots literally with all of these signs, uh, we received a grant from Mass Humanities um, to hire a historian by the name of Victoria Salone, who was originally from Brookline and now lives in Ottawa. She spent uh, almost six months. researching each of these businesses, each of these communities, and each of these signs to create didactic information that'll be located um, on the light blades um, uh, to talk about each one of these signs. Dave Waller also has a massive collection of historical ephemera that goes with each of these signs. As you can kind of see up here, this was Bay State in about 1935 before the neon was introduced and how they have the Bay State sign here. Still the spring man, he's still going like this, but no uh, actual neon. The original Flying Yankee restaurant from about 1940, where you can get a ham sandwich and a cup of coffee for $0.05. Cents. Um, the original Siesta Motel keys. Um, we are going to be doing a lecture uh, in partnership with the Boston Center for the Arts on July 12 uh, that's going to be moderated by Victoria Salone. That will feature Dave Waller, uh, the collector of these uh, historic neon signs. We'll also be bringing in Lizbeth Cohen from the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University to talk about roadside architecture history in the post-war era. Uh, We'll be bringing in Liftwork, who's a contemporary artist that will also be shown on the green wall, I'll get to that in a second, to talk about how the use of light in architecture uh, and then we'll also be bringing in a woman by the name of Cynthia Warso from the Neon Museum in Las Vegas to talk about how neon uh, in pop culture uh, uh, kind of relates to this exhibition. Um, so we're very excited about this. Uh, we just recently started putting up the neon signs this week. We have three up currently. We have uh, Fontaine's, uh, Bill's Radio, and The European. And we'll be working through the rest of this week and next week to install those signs and then insert the neon and then light them. Uh, So I encourage you to come down and see those. (laughs) Um, So to complement that, and to go into a contemporary light, no pun intended, um, we've commissioned two other works that highlight light and reflection in uh, contemporary culture. The first of that is a work by Luftwerk out of Chicago. Uh, Luftwerk uh, created a work called Transition, and Transition traces a portion of the Greenway path as it shines a light, both literally and metaphorically, on the connective artery in the city. Celebrating the green layer that reunites the neighborhoods once divided by the freeway, it nods nods to the now-buried thoroughway of Interstate 93 below. Looking back to the history surrounding the Big Dig, Transition highlights this current movement with an open-frame structure. A series of meandering wire frames shine a tunnel of light along the path in the park. Rather than dividing the city, it welcomes and invites connectivity, allowing for access as a procession through and onto the path itself. So the inspiration for that artwork is actually the light system in the I-93 tunnel. Uh, Some of those, you know, we may not notice it all the time, but this is the light that is kind of guiding us to and from communities. It's also helping to create and merge communities together. And so this was the impetus for that work. Liftwork explores light, color, and perception in immersive experience-based installations. focused on the context of a site for each project. Liftwork uses uh, uses new and emerging media to apply their own interpretive layer, integrating the physical structure, historical context, and embedded information into each piece. Since its founding in 2007, Patrick Bachmeyer and Sean Galero have amassed a significant body of work ranging from site-specific, immersive installations to experimental projects that interpret data. They do, uh, I don't have an image or a slide here, but they have worked considerably with uh, Falling Water uh, and Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, as well as the Farnsworth House. Um, they're amazing, amazing artists. Uh, and so this is at the actual structure which will be created uh, which creates the tunnel system with a series of LED programmable lights that will guide you through what we call Parcel 18 in the Wharf District. You may be familiar the beer gardens up here. Um, so look for that coming soon. That will be installed in June. Another artist that we're bringing in, Anne Lilly. Anne Lilly uses carefully engineered motion to manipulate our perceptions of time, place, and self. Her austere, meticulously constructed sculptures move in organic, fluid, and mesmeric ways, pressing rational qualities against the sensuous response of each piece. Lily studied engineering at RPI and received a bachelor in architecture from Virginia Tech, and she actually lives and works in Somerville, Massachusetts. Her artwork is titled Temple of Neman. So I'm just going to read you her statement, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. It is the mere suggestion of a building. Four columns and beams are the only structure— a shifting eight-mirror canopy, the only ceiling, four wooden boards with headrests, the only furniture. And who is Niman? Niman is a unit of memory, a peace of mind. Niman is you, and this temple is hosting a conversation between you and the world. It's a significant interview. While the world is infinite, infinitely encrypted, a share of its secret meaning is vested in you. When you lie here and look up into the sky, you see downward as well. You see how the earth and grass encase you, Pairs of mirrors slide back and forth to form a void and then heal it. In other people, if other people are present, you see them come into being and then be taken away. You also see how you appear in the world and then how you disappear. as the robe of your body is parted and you are surrendered to the sky. During your visit to Temple of Naman, you need consider no other moment than today. Envision no other place than right here, and sympathize with no other human life than the one you are living. Temple of Neman is part of an ongoing series of mirror works that probe self-perception and the construction of being and otherness. It is a lens, a filter to be looked through more than an object to be seen, a tool for transforming one-of-the-moment experience of self and other. The artwork references the disappearance of community and how one positions or sees themselves as part of a whole and the disappearance of community through internal and outward reflection. So this is a really conceptual little work here. <laughs> uh, basically, this is the, the structure in which you would lay under on these, on these benches here. And you have a series of kinetic moving mirrors that come together uh, and then apart again to create this image that you're seeing here. This is uh, you know part of a new body of work that Anne is really working through. She is really more well known for her tabletop kinetic pieces that are moved by hand movement essentially. And so to lay under this and then have um, this body of work um, kind of bring you together and apart was based excuse me, was based off of this artwork that she created about a year and a half ago. Um, this is actually myself and Anne Lily. Uh, sitting across from each other uh, and then this is my old assistant as she disappears within the mirror works so we took this work and we expanded upon it to talk about how um one, I wanted a respite from kind of the glowing nature of neon and this walkway that's kind of moving you through space. So this is a place for you to rest. And so, though it's not dealing with, me- with uh, light, it's dealing with reflection. And specifically, how you see yourself, or how the disappearance of yourself in community. You know, a larger aspect of this exhibition is also to talk about light and how the disappearance of light references this idea of uh, redevelopment of community, of gentrification, of the disappearance of a subgroup in some instances, or of nature itself. And so this is a chance to really kind of connect back internally with yourself, with the sky and the grass, nature, and, and to hear you know, the sounds of the city all around you, essentially, but to kind of be at peace with yourself. So these, this work is also going to be installed uh, in uh, June. It'll be uh, June 18th. I think, is when that artwork is going in. And then this is actually a map of where all the artworks will be this year. I'm gonna just go through a couple other uh, few works that are currently already installed. But uh, located in the Wharf District here in, uh, in these two parcels of parks uh, will be the Neon Exhibition. Just south of that, across from um, the um, uh, Rose Wharf, uh, is Anne Lily's kinetic based work. Uh, this piece right here where the beer garden is right here, uh, still in the Wharf District, is Luftworks. Uh, and then in Fort Point, we have a work by Akash Helani, which I'll show you in a moment. This is Sherry Hughes's new mural that'll be going in at Dewey Square. And then we have two works, one in Chinatown and one in the Leather District, which I'll I'll talk about in a moment as well, too. So we have quite a bit of artwork coming in this year. Um, We purposely left out doing anything in the north end as I did a a very large installation on the grass there last year, and we're letting that uh, land kind of heal back. Uh, And also, we're installing one of uh, our largest... um, developments this year of a new garden parcel um, that was a bequest um, gift from the um, the Lynch family to redo an entire Boxwood area uh, and to bring it up to par um, with the other redesign we did back up here about two years ago in the north end itself. So we have a couple other artworks that are still on display. Uh, the first is, uh, excuse me, is the first is uh, two works by Akashna Halani called "Balancing Acts One and 2. and these are somewhat of a layover um, piece from the P- Playful Perspectives exhibition from last year. Although they were just installed in January, um, yeah, reasons uh, for that were a little bit of engineering uh, feats. Akash Halani um, uses a variety of mediums, uh, specifically masking tape and, um, and uh, paint, to make his work. This was his first outdoor uh, sculptural work. These pieces are about nine feet tall by two and a quarter inch thick. So for understanding the engineering aspect of that and how we were going to translate his work from tape, masking tape and paint to, to steel sculptures was a bit of a little bit of a feat. But Nahalani creates minimalist ge- geometric forms on two-dimensional planes that simulate three-dimensional interactive experiences. Uh, he exploits the malleability of human senses, and his site-specific artworks modulate on spatial perce- perceptions to provoke surprising and often humorous moments that interrupt the routine of our everyday lives. So a lot of this is really his work, in order for it to kind of work, needs interaction. It needs to have that kind of moment where it looks like you're pushing these things onto each other. Um, the beautiful thing about this is when we install these in the winter, having them set against our our... our a myriad of snowstorms uh, they became like these rising icebergs out of the out of the the lawn itself, but they also look superimposed as you 're passing by them whether through a vehicle or whether uh, walking through and you actually need to go up there and really investigate how these things are made because as you pass by sometimes they disappear uh, continuing with the um, chinatown works the zodiac series in Chinatown so in two thousand and fifteen I started a curation that this Essentially 12 years long. Uh, each year, um, we will uh, work with an artist, a to, to co- uh, contemporary artist, to contemporize this idea of the Chinese zodiac that changes over every year. Um, I wanted to bring together this idea of generations and also um, pay tribute to the history of the community that has existed there and still exists there, um, but also reference the, the fact that this community is changing. And so we created what was called the Zodiac Series, Uh, and we're in its fourth iteration with the Year of the Dog. And this is a work called Year of the Dog by Risa Puno. And the Year of the Dog celebrates the characteristics of the current uh, Zodiac and honors the collective memory and experiences of the Chinatown community. Through her research, Puno was inspired by conversations she had with the people who live, work, or play near Chinatown Park. She was moved by the memories of Chinatown, as well as the thoughts about the personality characteristics associated with the Zodiac Dog, such as generosity, loyalty, and the ability to work well with others. The spinnable blocks are engraved with traditional Chinese characters and excerpts of the stories that Puno collected from the community. Visitors are encouraged to turn the blocks, constructing new stories and interpretations. The meaning of a Chinese character changes based on the characters that appear before or after it, creating poetic connections that would otherwise be impossible to describe in the English language. The format of this artwork is designed to be playful and dynamic, like dogs, and the very act of collecting the content relied on the giving nature and collaborative spirit ascribed to the zodiac animal. Puno Hope's Year of the Dog helps different generations connect through storytelling and tradition, embodying the role of the dog as a harbinger of friendship. And this was a really transformative piece for the community because it was created uh, with the community in mind, and literally the stories are written in the hand lettering and CNC'd onto these blocks um, that she connected. And each of these uh, vertical columns here talk about a specific aspect of the other dog. So this may be about friendship. This may be about loyalty. This one may be about family. And so as you spin those blocks and then connect the dots with all of these other uh, characteristics, again, it, I, I kind of... uh, in a silly way, ascribe it to being like magnetic poetry, essentially. You can change these narratives. Uh, And then I also wanted to just touch base also, too, on the fact that we do have a very strong um, arts ambassador program. Uh, It's going into its fourth year. Uh, It was started in 2015. Uh, And since the inception of this program, which is completely volunteer-based, we've put in almost 2,000 hours of volunteership of volunteers out there talking in, uh, to the public about the artworks we have on the Greenway. Uh, The arts ambassadors interact with visitors, providing guidance, discussion, and information about our current art installations, contemporary art practices, and the Greenway itself. Ambassadors help the public better understand the artwork throughout the park system, helping to inspire our many visitors. Um, This has been a really uh, wonderful uh, uh, program. Uh, We have anywhere between 18 to 25 um, ambassadors that are out there from May until September. Uh, This year they will be based around the GLOW exhibition, specifically the, the NEON exhibition to provide a better context, and also to um, be there as ambassadors, just in general, uh, as, you know, why are these signs here? You know, I remember, just there to listen, because the one thing that we've learned is that people just want to tell their stories. And so it's a chance for them to be out there to tell their stories and for us to hear back. Um, but it's been a, a wonderful program. Uh, we're always looking for volunteers. If anybody is interested in volunteering, uh, I'd be happy to talk to you um, about this, this uh, program or any of our other volunteer uh, uh, opportunities on the Greenway. Um, and this is just the arts ambassadors around the Iowa Way artwork that we had uh, previously. But with that, thank you. <laughs> a lot of information, and I'm sure a lot of questions. <laughs>